you can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James 1, kept is the name of the series that we are in the middle of. Kept is also a season. It's a season where, as church leaders, we are unfolding for us as a church family where we believe God is leading us over the next three to five to seven to ten years, and we're calling the church family to invest in this um, financially, to give generously to it. Because we know that kept is the story, our story. If you're a Christian this morning, kept is your story. You've been given an eternal inheritance. You've been given an unfading um, crown of glory that will one day be yours in Christ. God is keeping you right now. But one of the things that we've also found over these last few weeks is that kept is what God does for his people. As the gospel and the church over the history of the church has always had to fight for its survival and left to mere human factors alone, God's church would not make it. But as Peter tells us, God keeps his church. God builds his church. And here at Four Oaks, we believe God has kept us as a church family these 27 years. And and really, fundamentally, what we're asking over these five weeks is, God, what have you kept us for? God, you've kept us, but for what ends? For what purpose? And so we've been unfolding our history and our story And there's three sort of priorities that have emerged, and we're kind of hitting them one at a time. Last week, we we talked about this idea that we believe God called us to this time and this place in Tallahassee to gather, to be his people on the northeast side of Killarne, not to to be a holy huddle, not to be settlers, to orient to ourselves, but to be pioneers, to have this as a home base for ministry, to be gospel, salt, and light to our neighbors all all around us. And we said that because this is our home, so to speak, we we want to aggressively pay down the debt on this building. Um, Seven, eight years ago, when we moved into this building, we strategically undertook um, those responsibilities, the mortgage to be in here. We, We didn't buy the building at that time. We began to buy the building at that time. And now we're calling all of us as a church family to say, hey, this is, this is sort of, this is where God has planted us, and we want to pay this building off, not just so that we can say we paid it off. We want to pay it off so that, or at least one of the loans initially, so that we can get to the good stuff. It's like, why do you want to pay off the mortgage on your house or your car note? Because well, you think about what you could do with those resources if you weren't sending them to the bank every month. If you weren't losing all of that interest income, that's what we're dreaming about. We're saying, God, what you've kept us together, but you've kept us together to pay down this debt so that we can be kept, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning, to give. Okay? And let me just tell you why we had Jamie here this morning, why when you walk out today you'll see a whole host of vendors and gospel partners out there that are advertising ministry to the least of these, as Jesus said. Let me just kind of communicate up front what, what our agenda is. It's not to slide this in the back door. It's not to subtly, okay? If there's anything subtle about the service, we have failed, okay, massively. This, our, our goal is very clear because we want to be galvanized as a church to authentic Christianity. And we are going to find in James chapter 1 how James defines true religion, 
Because we want to we want to leave a lasting gospel imprint in Tallahassee. We want to serve the very least of these who are all around us. We don't exist merely to meet our own spiritual needs as important as those are. We exist for we exist for a purpose beyond that even. We are kept to give. Kept to give our resources, we'll hear about, but we're kept to give our lives away. And James tells us what that looks like. We're going to camp out in James 1.27. Let me read that verse for us, and let me provide a little context. James 1.27 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. So anytime a scripture writer says, let me tell you what authentic religion is, we ought to listen. Okay, we ought to listen very carefully and not try to start figuring out what James really doesn't mean. Religion that is pure and undefiled before the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Guys, there's a lot of things James could have said there. Let me tell you what true religion is, for Oaks, is, is, is to go and take the world for Jesus. It's to go and plant hundreds of churches, to send Send tons of missionaries. There's a lot of big, awesome, uh, you know, audacious things that God could call us to do. But James doesn't mention any of those, although they are important and have their place. He says, here's your true test, Four Oaks, if you know me. Do you love the least of these? Now, I'm going to put this into some context because we all know, or, or we should know, Now, we can nail this verse, we can do it better than anyone, humanly speaking, but still be far from the kingdom of God, okay? So we need to understand why James says what he says to make sure that we connect the purposes of God to this verse and what God wants to do in our hearts and in the lives of those who need him. So let's back up a little bit to verse 19. We'll flash this text on the screen. Let's read the whole thing. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves." For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this man's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Lord, we need help. I need help. Lord, um, Four Oaks family doesn't need a rant, or we don't need a pep talk, Lord, we, but we do need some gospel. We do need to be reminded that we were the hopeless, 
We were the pitiless. We were the orphans. But you sent your son so that we could be adopted into your family. Lord, that's the connection. So Lord, open our eyes to see it, embrace it, to live it, to be doers of the word, not to earn your love, but Lord, to express your love, to show your love, to respond to your love. We're asking this in your son's name. Amen. John MacArthur notes that the Bible is primarily interested in addressing three types of people or three groups of people. The Bible addresses Christians, those who profess Christ, who claim to know Christ, who follow Christ. The Bible addresses non-Christians as part of an effort to call them to know the true and living God. But MacArthur notes, and I think this is really important, that the Bible also addresses a third category of people, and these are non-Christians, but are those who have deceived themselves into thinking they truly are Christians. That's a whole different category altogether. Those who, who, who think they are, but in fact may not be, this whole letter, in fact, was written for this specific purpose, that these Jewish Christians living in 40 AD would not be deceived about who they truly were because they claimed Christ. Now look at look in the passage, back of the passage, verses 22 and 26. Listen to how many times James uses the word deceive. He says, don't deceive yourselves. He says, don't, don't let your heart be deceived. He, he addresses anyone who thinks of himself as religious. See, there is a class of people, and, and most of us would include ourselves in that class, that we think of ourselves very religious. We go to worship, we study, we gather together, we, we affirm a doctrinal statement of faith. These, these are the people that James is speaking to, except there was a problem. There were, the, the problem was simply this. They had reduced the Christian faith down to a set of intellectual facts. Let me say this. We're, we're an, we aspire to be an intellectual community. We, we preach the word of God. We teach. We, we, we try to unpack what the scriptures say. So, folks, it's particularly, particularly relevant for a church like ours to heed what James is saying. James goes on in chapter 2 to say, the Christian faith is not analogous to learning a set of intellectual facts and passing a history test. Knowledge alone, knowledge is crucial, but knowledge alone will not save you. The question is, have we entrusted ourselves to the gospel? Have we entrusted ourselves to the word of God? And James says, if any of you think you are religious, here's the test of authentic Christianity. This is always the test for God's people. And James outlines it here. Does the, root, does the word of God root itself in your life? Does the word of God wrap itself around your heart and does it change you? Are you a doer of the word? As we're going to see in a minute, the doing doesn't save you. 
The doing is the evidence of being saved. But make no mistake, they both go together. Look at verse 21. Listen to the exhortation that James gives this church and gives us. He says, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That word meekly received, it means to be open, to be teachable, to be trainable. Do, do you and I, when we come to God's Word and, and we read things that we don't agree with or we may not like or that we are struggling with, is there a movement of God's Spirit in our hearts that begins to rearrange the furniture in our souls to make room for the truth of God? James says that's what a Christian does. That's what a Christian does. And he uses this metaphor of someone going and looking in the mirror. Now, this past Tuesday was, was Valentine's Day, and I know a lot of you posted um, pictures of your of your honey, your Valentine on Facebook, okay? And Susan, of course, did the same for us, all right? And I know because about 300 of you commented on it, okay? And so as we see this picture, of course, what is the first thing that everybody cues into? The hair, of course, right? Okay, the hair. It's like, Susan is so 80s right there, even though it's the 90s, but it's awesome, okay? And, And this is early 90s, this is early 90s, of course, I look meticulous in my outfit there. But anyway, this was a time in life, guys, when, when Susan and I were dating, where I was constantly looking in the mirror, okay? Now, I wasn't looking in the mirror to see how awesome I was, even though I knew I was awesome, okay? That's not the reason I was looking in the mirror. And you can get that picture off right now. Okay, thank you. All right. I was looking to make sure I was perfect, right? Is every hair just right? Okay, is there a place that I missed shaving? Is there some sort of boogie hanging out of my nose? Or what, whatever the case is, I'm going out and winning this woman's heart, right? The mirror was a big deal. Have you noticed, by the way, the older you get, the less you care about the mirror? It's just kind of like, well, whatever, we're already married, doesn't really, it doesn't matter, okay? Nothing she can do. Um, now, how strange would it be if I had this discipline, or you and I had this discipline and practice of looking into the mirror, detecting the imperfections, the things that we can change, but then walking away and kind of forgetting that it was ever there. We, we, we would ask, what's the point, right? What's the point? See, James says that's what a lot of people in church do. They come to the Word of God. There, there's a set of intellectual beliefs to affirm they, they, they achieve a level of doctrinal knowledge or doctrinal pre- precision. They feel assured about what they, what they affirm. They can argue and debate it. They can memorize it, and all those things have their place. But they, once looking at the word, walk away unchanged. James says, that's not authentic faith. See, the purpose of the word of God, going back to verse 21, is to save us. And once it saves us, it will, by definition, begin to change us. Now, sometimes those changes are slow. They're incremental. It's three steps forward and two steps back. And sometimes the change is imperceptible. But do do you know what distinguishes authentic biblical faith? Again, 
MacArthur says it this way. He says, you see, it's not our perfection that proves our salvation. It's the reaction to our imperfection. Ooh, see, that's, that's the thing. See, we're not here to cast an up and down vote this morning. Your faith is real or, or it's not if you're caring for widows or orphans or if you're not caring for widows or orphans. That, that's not the point. The point is when you read verses like verse 27, what happens in your heart? Is your heart moved? Are you, are you uncomfortable? Do you struggle? Do you wrestle when you're confronted? Do you repent? Do you change? Do you say, God, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm failing in this area. I know I need your grace. I need your help. Or do you come to the Word this morning and say, meh. Somebody else is going to do that. See, this has everything to do with verse 27. See, James says pure religion, and, and by that word pure, untainted or authentic, let, let's use some, some cultural vernacular. His faith is genuine. His faith is uncompromised. His faith is authentic. You have genuine spirituality. James says, here's the test. Okay? And this, this whole book has a number of these tests. I'm just focusing on this one. Do you love? Do you love? Do you know John says basically the same thing in 1 John? He says, he who claims to know the truth but, but hates his brother, truth's not in him. See, when the Holy Spirit changes our hearts, we begin, our affections for others begin to change. We begin to see them as Christ sees them. And of all the people that James could have, could have asked us to consider this morning that we love, he chooses, can you believe it, widows and orphans. Now, now, why would James do that? I think it has to do with the fact that in that culture, and in most certainly in ours, oftentimes the least of these are the hardest to love because they have the greatest of needs and they need help the most. You know, it's not a test of love necessarily to like hanging out with people you like, okay, or who can give you something in return. James says the true test of love is do you visit widows and orphans? We know widows and orphans in that culture were incredibly vulnerable as they are in our culture. The whole book of Ruth is about Naomi. They're go- the, the, the men are gone. They've been decimated. The family is on the verge of extinction. It is life and death. There were no orphanages, children on the street roaming, massively vulnerable. We see this in all parts of the world now. There's places in Africa where, where because children have no parents, young boys are thrust into the army. Young girls are thrust into sex trafficking. James says, Four Oaks, the true test of authentic faith here is when you hear that, when you read that, when you're confronted with that, are you moved? Does your heart say, that's not the way it's supposed to be? I may be failing in the way that I love these, but I want to fail no longer. When Jesus says, when James says, visit them, it's interesting First of all, he says, visit those who are in affliction. The word affliction 
is the same word that we get the word tribulation. And for those of you who have worked for the least of these, you know that every day is not just a trial. It is a tribulation. Where is my food coming from? Am I physically safe? Do I have a place to rest my head? Is my husband going to beat me? Is my boyfriend going to leave me? Am I going to be financially solvent? Every, every day is a crisis. And, and James says, visit those people. Now, visit doesn't mean let's meet for, for, for coffee at Starbucks, right? That's not, what, that's not what he means. The word visit is the same one is used in the Gospels when it says Jesus visited the widow whose son had just died. And what does Jesus do? He cares for, he cares for, he attends, he serves, he ministers, he brings physical life back to this widow's daughter, this widow's son. He, he, he waits on her like a, like, a, like a waitress or waiter waits on you at a restaurant. Visit them. And in doing so, understand what we're doing, poor oaks. This is the gospel in action. So you can sever this from the gospel, and it can just be do-goodism, humanitarianism. We'll never, we're not going to be any closer to the kingdom of God than when we started, but when we connect it to the gospel, he who was rich for our sake became poor. Whoa. See, in, in, our, in our culture, which is increasingly divisive, increasingly hostile, the one thing that cannot be argued about is this. It can be explained away, but it cannot be argued down. It's a powerful apologetic. It's a paradox. It's what Tim Keller says. It's one reason why the early church exploded. On one hand, there was severe opposition. But on the other, there was a begrudging respect and admiration. Because no one else would care for these people except who? The church. Christians. The gospel in action. I want you to watch this video of the gospel in action with Tim and Trish. My name is Tim Duff, and I've been going to Forbes for 18 years. My name is Trisha Duff, and I've been at Forbes for 14 years. We met and got married here at Forbes. Um, this is our church home. I came here as an 18-year-old straight out of high school. I grew up from a child to an adult here at Four Oaks, and I, I can't imagine being anywhere else. God has always laid heavy on my heart to serve our community. Like that's where my heart, my desire has always been. Between that desire and then Trisha's desire of serving children, serving uh, women in crisis, he combined our two desires to serve children in need. God has brought me on a, a long journey to the specific ministry of foster care from an 18-year-old serving in um, ministry at Women's Pregnancy Center. That heart for caring for the unborn grew into a heart for caring for children and families from the womb all the way to the tomb. And as we got married and we had a family, God really merged our two hearts for ministry together and just laid foster care in front of us and we realized that's perfect that is exactly where we need to be the fears we had going into foster care were how is this going to affect our kids uh, bringing 
brokenness into our home? Is that going to introduce brokenness to their innocent lives? Because they would have possibly a kid placed in the house and then ripped out two months later, and they're going to grow to be friends with this kid, to be a brother and sister with this kid. And ultimately, it's okay for my kid's heart to be hurt for the gospel. As hard as that is to say, it's okay. It's okay for them to be a little broken. It's okay for them to see the brokenness of the world. I think God can use that in mighty ways in their life. I think it can make them better, more empathetic, more loving and serving people. Because to be able to see God in the midst of brokenness is much easier than seeing God in the midst of affluence. The licensing process took about six months. Uh, we were done on December 10th, 2015. We had our first placement on March 17th, 2016. I got the call around 2.30 in the afternoon. My oldest son was at school. My two girls were napping and they called for an 11-week-old girl. Can you please take this little girl? She needs a family. And so I said, let me call my husband. He's at work and I'll get right back to you. So I called him and he immediately said yes. I called him back, I said yes, we'll take her, and they brought her over three hours later, this tiny little baby. All she had was a bag of one diaper and a dirty bottle, and she was in a onesie and had nothing else with her. One of the joys was seeing how quickly the kids took to her. Uh, they immediately loved her like she was their sister. I mean, they were giving her toys, they wanted to hold her, they wanted to feed her a bottle. Nora Grace, she was four at the time, went to school and was telling everybody that she had a new sister, and she was just so excited. There's been a lot of hard things about being a part of the dependency care system. You're dealing with a whole lot of sinners in a broken system. Um, we're sinners, so we bring a negative attitude towards it most of the time. The everyday hard thing is these kids are coming from trauma, and so their behaviors reflect that. And it's really hard in those moments to remind yourself that they're acting out because they don't know anything better. They don't know what it means to feel safe. They don't know what it means to feel loved. In a lot of cases, they don't trust that they're getting their next meal, so that the screaming, the acting out, the difficult behaviors, it's hard to remember where they're rooted in and to keep your cool. One of the other hard things is trying to interact with their families in a positive way. These moms, they've just had their world turned upside down, and so they're angry at you. Whether that's justified or not, they are. They're sinful. They're broken people, and, and so am I. I'm a sinful and broken person. And if not for the grace of God, I could be that mother whose child has been taken away. To come into those situations with grace, you are demonstrating to them proper parenting, proper care, in hopes that their heart will turn around too and that they can become the parent that that child needs. One of the things that the Lord is doing in our life and, t and teaching our kids through this is that our home is not our own. It's to be leveraged for the gospel, that their toys are not their toys. They're to be shared with others, that their room is not their room. Their clothes are not their clothes. Their food is not their food, that it's all given to us by the Lord to use and to serve the community that we've been placed in. And it's a struggle. 
but we are in a situation where we are privileged. You know, we are in a very safe place for the most part. And it's okay to step out. We can't sit in our safe upper middle class white bubble and not venture out and see the real world that's out there. That's not what God has called us to, that he's called us to care for the poor, care for the sojourner, care for those in need. The goal of foster care is reunification. And so from day one, when we take that child into our home, we know that if it's successful and everything goes exactly how it should, that she will leave. And as hard as that's gonna be, and we know it's gonna be hard, that's what we're hoping for. We're, we're hoping for our hearts to break at the end because that means she gets to keep her family. Everything we've gone through is worth it. She's our sister. We love her. We're gonna take care of her because God created her just like he created us. spend the last few minutes that we have together considering this. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for our church to be doers of the word? And as, as we dive into that for a few minutes, I, I want to address something here. Something that I think is real that we need to, to grapple with. You may honestly be sitting there and saying, Pastor Paul, I, I have to be honest, I just don't, I don't feel generous. <laughs> I, I don't feel compassionate. This, this stuff doesn't really move the needle for me. What, what should I do? I think C.S. Lewis has a great piece of advice for us. Here's what he says. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Don't bother, don't bother this morning whether you, whether you really love widows and orphans. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking them more. In our psychological therapeutic age, that's blasphemy. We don't do anything unless we feel it, right? Because I think Lewis is right. Because I think Jesus essentially said the same thing. Listen to Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, sell your possessions... Give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Jesus doesn't say, wait till you feel it. Jesus says, if you do it, God will unite your heart in it. Now, let me say, guys, there's a reciprocal relationship here. All of us, our, our time and our money follow our affections, whether that's college football or hunting or camping or traveling or something else. But, but Jesus says the reverse is also true. Your affections flow from your actions. Think about whatever it is that you love to do. You love to play golf. Did, did you wake up one morning and say, you know what? I've hated golf, but now I love it. And I'm going to spend all thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours of free time on that 
ridiculous sport of hitting that ridiculous ball, okay? Is, is that what happened? No, no. You probably went golfing with your dad. You probably hung out with your college friends on Seminole Golf Course. You, you probably went to the Masters with a group of guys. You, there was probably these, this discipline of action that began to f- mold and shape your affections. See, what Jesus is telling us, if, Four Oaks, if we are obedient and faithful to put our time and our money here, God will shape our hearts. And when he shapes our hearts, we will want to give even more of our time and our money. Let me talk about time for a second. There's a little handout on your seat when you came in, which lists a number of gospel partners and ministries that are not only um, available to you, they're actually out in the lobby right now. And they would love to talk to you about any way that you feel God is moving you to serve in this way. God has not called all of you to foster, although he's probably called more of you than are doing it. Let me say that. But think about all the different ways God could use you. Florida Baptist Children's Home is outside to talk about adoption. The Go Foster representative is, is there. Maybe your heart beats for women in crisis pregnancy, and you want to talk to Jamie with, with um, a women's pregnancy center, or our friends from the Pregnancy Health and Information Center who also do a very similar thing on the south side of town. Maybe you want to really connect with women in crisis who are not just pregnancy, but domestic abuse, violence, Making Miracles Group Home with Deborah Harris provides safe haven for women in those contexts. We're, we're, we're in the middle of pioneering our own ministry in partnership with some of these other ministries you see here called Titus Homes, Safe Families. This is an opportunity to network again strategically and get people here at Four Oaks. Some of you have been doing this this past season of hosting the least of these in your home and single moms because we know that once the pregnancy happens, there's one thing of bringing a baby to term, there's quite another in discipling that woman and giving her skills. Maybe you want to be a guardian ad litem. You want to legally represent those who are in foster care. There's tons of ways to be involved with your time. Go visit one of those. Guys, you don't, listen, we go to New Orleans, we go to Uganda, we go to Haiti, and we firmly affirm those things, but you don't have to go that far. Sometimes it's harder to go right out there to the lobby because this stuff doesn't leave. You don't, you don't paint a fence and call it a mission trip and come home. You, you live with brokenness. So, so, so go visit one of the, the, the partners out there. The second way is to give. Now, let, let, let me be really clear. God's people are called to do more than give. We've been talking about that. But I will say God's people are not called to do less. God's people are not called to do less. Here are some of the priorities we've established as a leadership over this coming season. Because we want to establish an orphan care fund that seeks to help fund um, those of you who decide to adopt or those of you who decide to foster. We want to raise, train up, release 20 new guardian ad litems to contend for children. We want to raise money to fund our Titus homes and safe families because we want to establish a deacon fund for benevolence needs in our community, which seem to be endless, but are nonetheless real. And guys, 
we, we're not the federal government that just wants to throw $150,000, which is what we want to apportion to this, and kind of toss money at it. No, no, no. We want this to begin to shape our priorities as a church. We want to make these initial expenditures, Lord willing, Lord trusting, as we pay down this debt, that this becomes a part of the regular giving cycle of our church, that we're invested into the ministry of, of the least of these now. But God, what would it look like for it to be even more, even more bold, audacious, faith, faith-filled? Because one of the ways that we're going to try to, in practical terms, exercise this idea of being kept to give is going to happen with the upcoming Commitment Sunday. And I want to just say a couple of things about that, what that is and what it isn't. There's a, there's a commitment card or intention card under your seat, and I just want to say a couple of things. One, one, one very real question you may have is, well, Pastor Paul, I, I get all of these initiatives. I get why it's important. I, I get kind of why we need to give to it. But commitment cards, is that kind of hokey? Do we need to do that? Let me just say this, okay? A commitment makes it real, Okay, a commitment makes it real. When Susan and I fill one of these out, which we will, alongside of you, and turn it in, it's real. It has our name on it. It's something that we're accountable to. Two, this needs to happen because, as leaders, we need to plan. See, there, there's all sorts of priorities swirling around, and we need to have a clear sense of how is God moving in the hearts of his people to, to be generous, is this is not going to be an emotional, emotionally filled, manipulative sort of meeting where we parade you all up front until you turn in a card, making you go up 10, 12, 14 times, whatever it takes. That's not what we're doing, okay? This is between you and the Lord. You may not be here. You can still turn in a card at a different time. The whole point is for you to say, what, what do we currently give? What do we give at Four Oaks? Where, where are we located on this generosity pathway? What would it look like for us to take a step forward? Or for some of you, a couple of steps. And to say, okay, here's, here's where we are. Here's our opportunity to expand our giving. This is what this looks like for two years. Okay, some of you might have some assets, resources that you want to commit up front. I told you before, we, our, our goal is to pay the debt down as quickly as we can so we can get to this good stuff. Because you need to know there have been people in the church, gifted givers, leaders, who have already contributed about $200,000 to that debt reduction, that $850,000 that we want to pay off. We want to call you to, to respond likewise. Be, be praying for this. We'll continue to call, talk about it over the next couple of weeks. But we want to hold up what it means to be a doer of the word. Time and money for most of us capture what that means. So I want to close our service by highlighting one additional way of being a doer, and this relates to our diaconate ministry. Because in the New Testament, we believe the New Testament teaches that pastors and elders are to lead through the word and prayer to be shepherds of the body, and that God has given us this thing called deacons Men and women who are called to lead through acts of service in the church and in the community. These are to be models and examples for us, for Oaks. These are not people that we commission as our deacons that do the work of ministry for us by proxy. 
They're to encourage us. They're to inspire us. They're to be an example. They're to help mobilize us. So over the past few months, about 20 men and women have been participating in this sort of inaugural training program for our diaconate as we've attempted to mobilize this army of deacons for ministry and service, both here in the church and in the community. We're going to recognize them this morning and pray for them. Then I'm going to talk about how that relates to you. So as they call their names, I'm going to invite them to come up here, line up behind me, and as well as our pastors and elders. Danny Adams, Mike and Kay Andrus, Doug Banks, Bradley and Christy Blake, Chris Conrad, David Duff, Tim Duff, Steve Halsell, Alan Iverson, Burke Mewborn, Lori Mulrooney, Terry Dudley, Tammy Pulsifer, Larry Rochelle, Kirk Tannis, and Neil and Diane Walter. And as these folks are making their way up here, I just want to point out something that is just manifestly clear from the New Testament. And that's how important men and women like this were. How important men and women like you were. We think about the Apostle Paul and all the great things he did for God. Wrote half the New Testament, three missionary journeys, planted multiple churches. But he gets to the end of Romans 16. He takes a moment to thank all of those who made his ministry of the gospel possible. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. They're risking their necks. Did you know that? Okay, but you are. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother. Then he goes on to list a dozen or more names, Androconus and Junia and Urbanus, Persis, Hermas. The list goes on and on. All of these men and women overseeing critical needs in the body of Christ that enabled the apostolic ministry of the gospel to go forward. So what will these deacons here at Four Oaks be doing? A variety of things, as you can imagine, overseeing Titus homes, handyman projects for widows in our community and in our church, benevolence, financial assistance, care for our missionaries, hospitality, praying, good news club, single moms and women. And let me just say, deacons, we are so thankful for you. But, but we want you to know what this is and isn't. This isn't we give our tithe check and you do the work of ministry for us, okay? We need you to mobilize us. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to have an opportunity for you to respond, um, to, to sort of identify your gifts and skills. It'll be part of a service bank, so to speak. So then the, that when there is a need, one of these deacons can mobilize and call you. Because we, we thank God for you. We thank God for being the arms and the legs of Four Oaks Community Church. I'm going to ask Scott Stake, and Scott's been sort of the man behind the curtain in terms of raising up, training, leading, organizing this group. I'm going to ask him to, to pray for these deacons now, and let it, let it be an encouragement, a model to us. How is God calling us to serve? 
visit, visit the kiosk on the way out today. Scott. Um, elders and pastors, we're gonna, let's lay our hands on these men and women. God, we come to you this morning um, thanking you for the good news of Jesus that he became poor so that we might be rich in the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, that you do not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you made yourself nothing. Um, thank you, Jesus, that you were a servant, that you laid down, you, you set aside your robe as a king, and that you took up a towel to wash the feet of the disciples as an example for us that we are called to serve the least of these. Thank you, Jesus, that you not only served as our, our example, but that you are high and lifted up. You are a king who, um, who intercedes for your people, that you care for us um, through your prayers and through your acts of service. Um, and Lord, you have given us your spirit so that we can follow your example, that we can care for the least of these. Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts as the people of God, that we would have a love for the poor and the lowly and the needy. God, that we would live out the gospel in both word and in deed. Lord, I thank you for these men and women who are on this stage. I thank you for their example of service. Thank you for the the many hours, uh, the many ways that you have called and equipped them to serve uh, throughout uh, the community and throughout our church. Lord, I pray that you would empower them, that you would pour out your grace and your mercy upon them. Lord, as they are seeking as examples, uh, serving as examples for us, we pray that we would follow them, um, that we would uh, that we would be inspired by their stories, that we would be inspired by their lives to, to serve as well. Lord, we want to be a church who is known as the city of God right here in Tallahassee. Lord, we want to be the light in the dark world. Lord, we want to, to show what it means to follow you by serving the least of these. We pray, God, that you would make Four Oaks um, a beautiful place that would um, that would highlight the kingdom of God who is coming on earth the way that it is in heaven. Lord, we want to honor you as our king. We want to serve you as we serve the least of these. Would you help us to do that by your grace and for your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we dismiss today. Because let this benediction be a word of truth to all of us as we consider the call today. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, now listen to this, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus, to whom glory be glory forever and ever. Amen.